Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a prominent member of the mob is taken out in Burlington. How will it change organized crime moving forward? Two ships collide in the middle of the day in the Welland Canal. How the heck does that happen? And the Prime Minister has found himself in ethical trouble once again. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Just before the weekend, uh, interesting news in Hamilton. Mob, man, uh, mob member Pat Masitano gunned down on Friday in Burlington. And uh, obviously, this has been an ongoing uh, situation that those in uh, Hamilton have been following. Uh, and uh, many are saying that this is the end of an era when it comes to uh, this uh, particular mob family. Here is uh, some reaction from residents in Burlington as this all went down. A little shook because it's super close to home. I mean, I literally live right there and to have everything taped off and it's just not normal. It's not normal to see. So it's a little scary. It's very, very quiet. I mean, like nobody bothers you. You know, I can go out for walks and never like fear anything. Like, I, I mean, like I said, I live right here. I'm like out all the time, grocery shopping down the street. I mean, running to the gas station convenience store, I'll bike, like I'll do. And it's not like, I don't fear anything ever. Like there's a lot of places where just people are in and out and it's busy. It's like a little busy area. So nobody ever really expects it. And then when something happens like this, it's like, Oh, I'm shook. Uh, let's bring in Antonio Nicasso, award-winning journalist, author, and expert on organized crime, and is with us now. Antonio, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. It's, uh, we had heard the term dead man walking uh, in regard to uh, Pat Musitano. Uh, obviously, there had been uh, attempts made in the past. Your thoughts here? Are you surprised? Not at all, unfortunately. In uh, um, that uh, uh, world, uh, live by the sword and die by the sword. Um, he was a dead man walking, uh, and uh, and you know, in in the mafia, revenge does not have a statute of limitation. So uh, they tried to kill him a, a few times. They killed his brothers. Uh, Angelo and, uh, and and I believe that uh, everything started with uh, uh, the idea to join force with Rizzuto and mastermind the murder of uh, uh, John Pops Papalia and uh, one of his lieutenants, Carmen Barillaro, in 1997. So this goes back to that killing back in 1997. Uh, are you surprised that, again, even over time and as organizations change, that these grudges are held as long as they are? No, because in, in the underworld, one never forgets an act of violence against oneself. So practically can lynch us throughout life. I remember cases uh, back uh, in 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 the old world, uh, <laughs> that uh, revenge came uh, has come after 50 years. So it, 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 I'm not surprised. They 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 have an alternative sense of justice. They live with their own rules, and uh, and, uh, and revenge doesn't lapse. That's it's a simple. I, I don't want to be cynical in my in my approach, but uh, what. Uh, uh, usually, uh, what comes around that goes around in, in, in the underworld. Many have said the end of an era. Is that accurate, and why so? Uh, probably it's the end of uh, um, 
this uh, this particular family, the fact that uh, Angelo and Pat uh, totally different character compared to his father Dominic. Uh, they were both gone down, and so uh, I, I think it's uh, an end of an era of that type of uh, of mobsters. They were an unusual type of mobsters. They love. Uh, uh, movies, uh, uh, Hollywood movies about the mafia. Uh, they they sometimes act like acting like a mobster uh, character of the movies. Uh, I think uh, with this uh, last chapter of the story, I think uh, there will be more room for uh, uh, partnership, uh, strategic alliances. Uh, many other things, uh, because uh, of course uh, the, the the mafia, uh, the underworld, uh, are nothing if not adaptive. Uh, they don't like uh, to uh, create social alarm. They don't like attention from media and and police force. And, and, and they, there is a, a great opportunity. Uh, the global shutdown during the pandemic is a great opportunity because they may invest money in 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 the economy in. Purchasing failing companies and and and, and strategize the next uh, next uh, uh, chapter of their business adventure. So I, I think uh, the, the 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 priority now is to uh, move it back on business. So uh, the end of an era in the sense that uh, that generation was too obvious, had too high a profile. Yes, I think so, because uh, uh, what I see, the mafia is wising up and keeping quiet. Um, of course, when they have to kill someone, they are very resourceful. Uh, but uh, I think the time of the Mositano is older. Other people will take their their place, and the people that they will take their place are people with the more knowledge about uh, cyber crime, people capable to keep a, pro, a, a low profile, keep, uh, people capable to take advantage of uh, 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 the, 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 the current uh, situation. I don't think uh, uh, there are more room for uh, uh, violence, uh, uh, especially unnecessary violence. In the underworld, violence is, is, is an important resource, it's an important tool, but if you have to settle an account, if you have to revenge, if you have to looking for turf, but I think what the many criminals realize is that the police and media attention is, is, is not good for business. So who will fill the vacuum? But so many people that can fill uh, 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 the vacuum. As you know, everything started with this idea of Rizzuto to cut the link with the American Cosa Nostra. They first got the link with the Bonanno in Quebec. Then they tried to get the link with the uh, Buffalo Mafia, the Magadino, Todoro Mafia in the southern Ontario. The idea is to have their own Cosa Nostra, Canadian Cosa Nostra. I think there are so many people that are trying to take to the, the, the place of the Musitano. For example, in, in Montreal, the two groups within the Rizzuto that were 
fighting, they reach an agreement. And I think uh, uh, that module will be replaced in, in Canada with the new people, with the new uh, gangster, with the new uh, uh, with the, uh, different people that will like to focus more on, on, on criminal activity rather than violence. Uh, how protected was Musitano? What would life have been like for him? But he was protected in the sense that he was traveled with uh, with the bodyguards. But uh, uh, you have to consider that they were trying to kill Musitano since 1997. Of course, they were not able to do that because he enjoyed the protection of the Rizzuto crime family until 2013. But the, when they lost the protection of the Rizzuto because Vito Rizzuto uh, passed away, practically they were on their own. And first they killed uh, Angelo, then they tried to kill Pat a few times. I don't think when there is a determination to revenge, to kill someone, there is protection that they can help you. Uh, in that, he, he was a dead man walking. His, his days were numbered. There was no protection that they could uh, save him. And uh, what about the, the location, uh, this happening in daylight, the situation, or is it just when you find an opportunity, you take it? Yes, when you find an opportunity, you take it. Uh, I, I, I agree with, uh, with, uh, with your analysis in the sense that uh, it, it, I think there were people uh, with this task uh, to gun down about uh, Musitano, and, and probably they were uh, looking every moment of his life uh, when they could uh, strike. And, and they, uh, as you know, the first uh, uh, tried to, they shoot in front of his house in Hamilton. They tried to kill him in Mississauga. And, 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 and then a few days ago, they were able to, uh, to, to kill him in Burlington. I think I, I, what I imagine, of course, we have speculating about the, this possible scenario because criminals don't issue press release. So we have just to assume. I, I'm thinking that he had the people looking for him 24 hours a day. Hmm. Uh, will they find out who did this? Will this killing be avenged in some way? But this, uh, this is uh, uh, something that uh, is more uh, that has that has to do more with a, a police intelligence, not of course uh, with someone like me that uh, teach social history at the university. I can only analyze. Uh, what I have in front of me, uh, I don't know if the in the the the, the Musitanos group uh, has enough people and enough resources to revenge this uh, this uh, this murder. Uh, because if they were not able to protect the path, I'm a, I'm assuming that they don't have the 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 strain to strike back. But that's again a speculation, an assumption. Uh, I, I, I don't have the, I, I don't share intelligence with. The, uh, I don't. I'm, I don't have. A, 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 I'm not. A, a, I don't have a, an opportunity to, uh, an, uh, to, to, to 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 use the intelligence available by police. And, and probably be, what I assume is that I don't think that Musitano they have a strain 
to strike back. Otherwise, they will protect Pat uh, 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 and avoid uh, his, uh, his murder. But I don't know. That can be an, another option. And if they have enough resource, enough strain, we may see more violence in the near future. So what happens to those that were left or that are left uh, under Misitano's rule? What happens to those or, or the organization that is left? Sometimes uh, when uh, you are uh, uh, working in, in, in a group and, and, and your rivals, your enemies are able to take down the leaders of the group, there are two options that you can regroup and, and, and identify a new leader and strike back, or it's quite possible that they may uh, uh, put an end on the relationship and looking for other opportunities. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see a, a different scenario. So that's the two possible scenarios. If they have enough resource, enough motivation, because it's, it's also about motivation. We have to see someone in that group that is willing to continue the war, willing to strike back. And sometimes motivation is everything. If I believe that someone did something harm one of my relatives, I, I have more motivation to, to revenge, uh, to strike back. But I don't know the motivation of the survivors, the people that used to, to uh, uh, work with Angelo and Pat. With this death, uh, where does this leave Hamilton in not only the history of this, but moving forward? But uh, um, the, the violists uh, are, are, are in prison. Um, the the Mositano are, are down. Pepalia was killed in 1997. Of course, uh, Hamilton today is not the Hamilton of the 70s, the 80s. Uh, the 90s is a, is a totally different uh, scenario, uh, and I don't think it's 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 important like used to be in terms of a criminal connection. Of course, it's a it's a place it's a turf it's a place where you can sell narcotics. It's a place where you can extort money. It's a place where you can provide services. Uh, in terms of gambling, in terms of many other uh, um, criminal activity and criminal opportunities. So there will be people that, that will uh, uh, fill the vacuum. That's uh, outside of the question. Others will take uh, the place of, uh, of Musitano. But in terms of uh, importance, I don't see that. that I don't have, feel that Hamilton uh, is, is important the way it used to be in the past. Antonio Nacasa has been with us, award-winning journalist, author, and expert on organized crime. Antonio, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott, for having me. You take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good news. Uh, as the premier has been announcing on Monday, uh, Mondays, certain Mondays, what will reopen on Fridays? What is to get ready for Fridays as we go through the various stages? Basically announcing today that uh, Friday uh, parts most of Ontario, I guess with population, perhaps not so, but certainly from a, a geographical regional standpoint, uh, most of Ontario moves into stage three. Three. However, Southern Ontario, and again, pretty much from Oshawa right the way around to 
uh, to Niagara still remain in stage two, uh, at least for another week or so. Here's what the Premier had to say about the opening. 24 regions in Ontario, the vast majority of our province, will be able to enter stage three this Friday, July the 17th at 12.01 a.m. This includes all communities except the following regions. Toronto, York Region, Peel Region, Durham Region, Niagara, Windsor-Essex, Haldeman-Norfolk, Halton, Hamilton, and Lambton. As we all know, these regions entered stage two later on, so we need just a little more time. I want the people in these regions to know that we won't leave anyone behind. And we will provide an update every Monday on regional reopenings. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert and professor. He is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well, Ahmad. Same to you, Scott. Thanks. So before we get to the actual stages, just we haven't chatted in a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, just your thoughts on where we are. Uh, daily totals uh, for Ontario, 116 new cases, obviously uh, quite a ways down from where we were. Your thoughts on, on where the country is, where the province is right now. I think we're doing exceptionally well across the board. I think we're seeing the decline in the numbers as an indication that all the measures we put in place and people's uh, dependence on public health interventions and relying on the advice of public health experts has actually worked. Uh, I think we're seeing that compared to our neighboring country, the U.S., we're doing tremendously well. Uh, and globally, I think people now are looking to Canada to see a model for progressive and slow reopening of businesses as an effective policy tool to get ahead of COVID-19. So overall, A-plus for our efforts so far. Uh, your thoughts on some of the province moving to stage three, obviously uh, very, very similar as we moved into stage two, uh, the populated areas around the Golden Horseshoe, obviously still into stage two. Your, your thoughts on this gradual regional reopening? Well, it makes sense from a policy perspective because oh, GTA area like Hamilton, Toronto and the area neighboring neighborhoods uh, have actually taken a longer time to get into phase two. So it's just buying those places a bit more time to get ready for stage three. It's really just a timing issue. And also, in addition, we know that those areas have had higher rates of COVID-19. So it's making sure that they're ready for when the time comes uh, for stage three reopening. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Ahmad, what has really changed here? What is making people feel confident or politicians, policymakers feeling confident to let us slowly relax these uh these restrictions is it because of the distancing the hand washing and and the mask policy is that what's allowing us to do that and where's that balance how are you concerned we might go too far so that's a great comment scott i think that the evidence tells us that when you combine face masks with social distancing we can slow down the 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 spread of covid19 that's a fact now. Many studies have been done, including ones on evidence aid websites that reviews systematic reviews, which is the highest level of evidence on this topic. And it has shown over and over again, face masks, public uh, physical distancing and hand safe hand hygiene actually can prevent the spread of COVID-19. So I think policymakers across the country are looking at that evidence, are looking at our numbers, a decline in our numbers. 
uh, that more people are getting tested. The fact that we have surge capacity to be able to test people in a very rapid phase. Those are all positive indicators that we can slowly and progressively open up. But also, Scott, we have to remind ourselves that we, we didn't follow suit like the rest of the world. You know, some countries went for aggressive reopening uh, very fast. We look at states like Texas in the U.S. and other countries around the world that have done so. It didn't always plan out well for them because when they opened up aggressively, they saw a massive spike in the numbers. We didn't see that in Canada, and I think that's why we can tell from what we've done so far as a policy option that's slow and progressive is the way to go forward on this. Uh, what if we Again, we all talked about the second wave. It seems as if we're so excited to be heading into stage three, and, and people are getting used to wearing masks, and, and, and the rhetoric and such has seemed to die down a bit. Uh, that being said, is this a false sense of security before a vaccination? Absolutely. So we need to we need to be very cautious here. Reopening does not mean that COVID is gone. As I've always repeated, saying that COVID doesn't care what stage we're in. Uh, the virus itself is vicious and is trying to get as many human hosts as possible. It could care less about which phase of the process we're in. It, what it cares most about is the, to make the most drastic measures or damage to our population's health. That's, that's why we have to be very careful moving forward that we don't relax the rules, that we continue to promote wearing face masks, physical distancing, and safe hand hygiene as three very key important tools for us to keep getting ahead of this COVID-19 pandemic. So whereas once we were concerned phase two and a second wave could be catastrophic way back when, when we didn't know much about this, are, are we looking at a second phase as being more pockets of infection where, you know, little, little breakouts have occurred and at least we, as you mentioned, have the testing and such and, and tracking and tracing to, to, to get a handle on these quickly? I think that's a fair assessment, Scott. I think what we're seeing now is that we're going to see a rise in numbers and subpopulations or priority groups, as we'd like to call them, which could be like, you know, our, our, our elderly senior citizens. It could be our homeless population. We're going to see pockets of spikes in numbers. Uh, but I think if we continue the measures we have in place and keep promoting them and reminding the public that, you know, the virus is still there and this is our current reality for the foreseeable future until a vaccine is in the market or a treatment, an effective treatment, that we have to continue those measures. And, and now as the fall is coming to soon with school reopening, I think policymakers across the world right now are looking into school closures and reopening of schools and how that would look like. So we're shifting our priorities day by day, depending on what the situation uh, is and, and what needs are needed in our community right now uh many still talking about masks you're certainly seeing uh more and more as we go into stores and such and some just demanding them certain areas municipalities demanding them uh some saying the province should make this a provincial uh uh a policy quebec has says that starting this weekend masks are mandatory uh in public places your thoughts on this well, I think that face masks are going to become a thing of uh, a mandatory across the country. I'll be very surprised if in the foreseeable future we don't see it mandated everywhere. But I think that's also globally. Like, you know, we can't be one of the few countries that doesn't mandate that. We look at countries across the Middle East, Africa, Asia, they're mandating face masks uh, already. And so I think Canada is just doing it the right way, which is making sure that the people are educated about the needs for face masks, allowing people to voice their concerns about it, rightly so, and voting. Uh, well, you know, at the end of the day, it has to be a decision that the majority agree upon uh, for us to move forward to mandating it. 
the premier announced uh, extending uh, groups and such up to 100 outside, 50 inside. And again, this is all stressing within the protocols of social distancing uh, and such, but didn't say much about expanding or didn't say anything about expanding those bubbles. Uh, actually, I'll correct myself there. The health minister did say that that would remain the same at 10. Why one and not the other, do you think? Well, I think that's two parts. One is I think there's an economical concern there. I think that businesses are dying to get back to open and, and needed to make the need, yeah. much needed income they've lost for months. Uh, and so there is that e- economy point of view that we need to reopen things uh, smartly. And I think it's a way of testing the system to see how that goes. Uh, will that change? It probably will, that policy, depending on the numbers. So we're testing it out with 50 people and then 100 indoor, uh, sorry, outdoor. It's, it's, it's a matter of time will tell situation. Um, when people, uh, it was interesting because I've, I've been on holidays for a couple of weeks and, and the discussion then was, you know, how do we reopen the, the discussion of masks and social distancing and such. And now we've certainly seen the attitude change. How much of that has to do with, again, just looking, as you suggested, to the south of what's happening down there? The border's obviously still remaining closed. Um, but is this not a great example of how to do it and how not to do it? Yes, I think that we're, we're very carefully monitoring the situation in the U.S. I think being the country closest to the U.S., most of our residents live by the border. This is of grave concern to everybody, right? We're looking at the alarming numbers that are coming out of the United States. Uh, they're not very positive uh, and there are heavy implications for us. So I think the narrative right now is that to keep the borders closed for the safety of our people. Uh, and I think that will continue until we see a better control in the U.S. over their numbers. Right now, it doesn't look very positive and we need effective leadership models there to allow for to them to get ahead of that because the current situation is quite alarming over there. Do you think the attitude is changing here, Ahmad, in the sense that uh, many said, well, this is an overreaction. It's not killing that many. It's not this. It's not that. We don't need to be doing this when, in fact, it's those very protocols that have put us where we are. But, but this is exactly to your point, Scott. I think we need to keep reiterating that message is that because we put the protocols in place, because we follow those interventions and we all play the role, every single person out there has played an active role in getting ahead of COVID, that we are where we are. We're in a good place. We're seeing positive results and we're moving forward. I mean, it won't take much for you to look across the country to the U.S. and see what could have done if we didn't do all those interventions, if we didn't listen to the experts in the field, uh, to our public health experts, to our governments who are putting out mandates that are based on research evidence to follow them. I think it took every single one of us to play our role for us to be where we are. And I think we've done a great job at that. I think that moving forward, people will look at Canada as the model of a country that tried different things. Some worked, some didn't. But for the most part, we're able to get ahead of this COVID-19 pandemic in a very effective manner. And I think the time will tell that. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You will find on, on our website uh, the video of two ships colliding in the Welland Canal over the weekend. And this is such a bizarre piece of video. I highly recommend you uh, take a peek at it on the website. Uh, and it, because it almost seems to be happening in slow motion, uh, the way it all goes down. Let's bring in Captain Colin McNeil, uh, who teaches and coordinates Georgian College's Marine Navigation and Marine Engineering Program and is with us now. Colin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. 
Hi, uh, no problem. I'm uh, I'm glad to help out. Uh, you know, I, I think just even as uh, as a layman looking at this, I'm thinking, my goodness, as an expert, what are your thoughts? What thoughts runs through your mind when you see this footage? Well, the first thing it's uh, it's obvious to me. It's the most important thing is there's no loss of life, right? Absolutely no loss of life and and no pollution. Uh, and that's the first two big things that come to mind as a you know a former marine professional and a current uh, uh, you know instructor and, and kind of manager in the marine industry. That first first thing that comes to mind is was everybody okay? Because when we all leave uh, our home to go away to our ship mm. to do our work, we uh, we want to return home safely. So no loss of life and no pollution. Um, when you know when the investigators come to look at what happened, obviously if there's no loss of life and no pollution, then the, the urgency and the immediacy of everything is that the ships are pulled off to the side, uh, inspections and investigations start. But but no nobody's taken off in a body bag, and there's no pollution, no fire, nothing like that. So that was obviously the first thing that came to mind. Um, and then after that, it's uh, you know we start to look at uh, at some of the factors that are involved and. Um, you know, you, you look through the who, what, when, where, and then you try to figure out from there what, what the why was. Um, you know, from what I can tell, uh, the uh, Florence Spirit is a Canadian flag vessel with Canadian captain and crew on board, and the Atlantis would have been a foreign vessel coming from Europe or something, uh, and it would have a Canadian pilot on the bridge. So um, um, two ships that are that are really designed to run the canal uh, with competent officers and competent crew and competent pilots, uh, and they're in the St. Lawrence Seaway um, and the Welland Canal. The Welland Canal and the St. Lawrence Seaway are really well-managed, professionally-managed, world-class organizations that manage the, the traffic, ship's traffic, day and night, uh, good visibility, poor visibility, uh, all of those things. So... Uh, so as good as conditions as you'll find anywhere in the world, really, for two ships passing uh, in a canal like that. Um, you know, what was the weather at the time? The weather was clear. Uh, wind, it wasn't very windy, so it didn't look like, uh, you know, it looked like the ships could see each other. They communicate. They weren't being blown off course into each other. Uh, so when you look at all of those factors right away, it looks like everything should be business as usual. And should be normal, right? And then after that, you kind of start to think about what the causes might be. So uh, common for two of these ships this size to be passing each other at this point in the canal. That's a normal process, correct? Yeah, those ships are actually small ships for the capacity of the seaway. Um, it looked to me like the, the, the Atlantis was a regular, called more or less a handy-sized cargo ship, which is smaller than the seaway capacity. I, I could be wrong on that. And the Florence is a little smaller than what normally passes through the seaway, so they would have plenty of room. Uh, that section of the, of the canal is uh, is a little wider section there, apparently, and it's, uh, it's, it's a normal passing zone. Um, there should be plenty of room for both ships to pass there. So is this a case of somebody not staying in their own lane? Well, that's uh, not something I'm going to give you an opinion on. Uh, the Transportation Safety Board of Canada has sent their inspectors there, and they'll come up with what the answer was. Um, I, I, it won't take long, right? Um, you got to kind of remember ships like this have... Uh, they don't stop easily, and they don't turn easily in yeah. open sea. Uh, where you've got lots of depth beneath the keel and you've got lots of water around you to maneuver and you've got your engines and everything working fully. 
Uh, in a narrow canal like that, there would probably be a meter or two below the keel, uh, below the bottom of the ship, uh, which kind of limits maneuverability a little bit. And there wasn't much room, obviously, on the port and starboard side. Plus, there's another ship in the way. Um, so there, the like smaller vessels and tugs, you can you know you can stop quickly. You don't have the the weight of the ship carrying you forward for momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if everything is working properly, maneuvering the ships and getting them stopped in the event of an emergency at the last minute like that is just not going to happen. Um, um, so, sorry, go ahead. Uh, my my thought is it it'll be obvious to the TSP what happened. It, it's probably either you know either human error, something went wrong, and and um, it, that'll be evident, uh, or it'll be uh, mechanical. Uh, that was my next question, and obviously I understand you you can't comment on this because we certainly don't know the details of the investigation at this point, but could it have been something like a mechanical issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, these ships have, have main engines that, that uh, run uh, propellers, right? In the simplest term, the propeller turns and then water is pushed past uh, the rudder. Uh, as the rudders turn to the right or turn to the left, the vessel uh, gradually turns to the right or turns to the left. Uh, and they've also generally got a bow thruster, which allows at slow speed, uh, less than four knots for the bow to be pushed to the one side or to the other uh, while docking and maneuvering and things like that. Uh, if all of those things were working on both ships, then you know, then you kind of look at, okay, what happened? Was there an error in maneuvering? Uh, so on and so forth. Uh, if if you know if there's evidence there that the ship blacked out or that it lost power to the steering gear or to the main engines, bow thrusters, all the you know or, or the other navigational equipment, then that will be clear, right? It will happen or it won't. Right. Um, so I mean, it, the TSP inspectors will go and, and and those things will you know the evidence will be collected and and in my opinion, it'll be quite clear as to what happened or what was the root cause. Uh, if they uh, find if they find it's mechanical, then they'll look further and say, okay, what you know, what caused it? Was there a problem here or not? But uh, I don't think it'll be difficult to determine what the exact acute cause of the collision was. Uh, obviously, for those of us that, that don't know much uh, about the, the, you know what it's like up at the uh, uh, on the bridge of a of a boat this size, at what point would both captains realize that something was going wrong? Would they be in communication with each other? Yeah, the, uh, the the entire St. Lawrence Seaway, basically from about 200 miles off the coast of Canada, right through the entire Canadian uh, seaway system, uh, ships are in contact with both each other and the uh, shore authorities who are managing traffic flow, uh, right from you know from Newfoundland right through to British Columbia on both coasts and the Arctic. Every ship is known; it's tracked, um, and if you know, say, for instance, two ships were to, in the middle of Lake Ontario, were to be heading on a collision course, uh, you know, the the authorities wouldn't have called them. But if they got closer and closer, there might be a call there just to say, hey, somebody better pay attention here. The, you guys appear to be in a collision course. So they're always being monitored uh, like that. So uh, in terms of whether the captains of, on the bridge and the pilot were in communication all the time, absolutely, yes, they would be. Um you know, if it was a mechanical failure, then, um, you know, as soon as one of the ships had that failure, they would have uh, contacted the other ship immediately to let them know. 
and then, you know, avoiding action would be taken. It'd basically be constant communication back and forth between the two ships and the, and the canal, really. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's between the bridge of one ship and the bridge of the other as to what the maneuvers will be uh, to try and either miss each other or, uh, in this case, perhaps even to try and minimize the damage. Uh, that's my, that was my next question. I mean, obviously for us, this looks like it's all happening in almost slow motion, but, you know, a different scenario on the bridge. Um, would any, would the other captain or I guess until we know exactly what happened, we're not sure what captain we, we would be referring to here, but would one see it coming and then in some way try to prepare and what would you, how would you prepare for that, for that impact? Well, I mean, to minimize the damage, you'd like to have, like, two ships passing and then kind of have a glancing blow, right? You know, your two cars, and you just bump your doors, and you scratch the doors as you go by, and there's no more damage than that, right? But in this case, um, in this case, they were colliding head-on. And ships are kind of like a bunch of boxes that are welded together, right? And the boxes Mm. contain cargo. And the front end of the ship, there's a, um, it's called a four-peak, and it's a big ballast tank, and and you can think of it kind of as a crumpling area, like a car, where the where the two bumpers would crumple and they would absorb all the energy on the impact, and mm-hmm. then they kind of stop, right? So at slow speeds in the canal, like like the two ships were progressing at quite slow speeds, and those those bows really absorbed a lot of the energy for that collision, and they were both hold. Uh, I think the Florence Spirit looks like in the pictures ladder that it's down by the head, so the you know the bow filled up with water and the weight pushed the bow down. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully no water got into the cargo holds, things like that. Um, the other ship looked like it's a little less damaged. Um, but, um, yeah, so, I mean, ideally that's what you want. If you have, you see ships at sea and one of them hits broadside onto the other, much like uh, at an intersection when you have two cars colliding, yeah. then a lot more damage can occur, pollution can occur, uh, things like that. Uh, if you're at high speed, mind you, in the middle of the ocean, and two ships hit hit bow to bow, the damage would be catastrophic. Um, so I think that, uh, in a lot of ways, the uh, two ships kind of colliding head on there, or almost head on, was uh, at slow speeds really, you know, minimizes a lot of the damage and allowed both of the ships to progress to the docks and uh, and tie up and wait for inspection. So, so would this have slowed down traffic through the canal at all? Yeah, absolutely. It. it uh, you know, if the ships had not been able to move on, you know, to uh, to lay by berths and wait, then they would have blocked traffic, uh, you know, possibly for days. Uh, it does happen once in a while in the St. Lawrence River where a ship will, you know, will be, you know, in a bad spot in the river aground or, or I think even a bridge uh, recently. And that just shuts down traffic. Uh, no one else can get by. What would it like? What would it have been like to be on one of these two ships when this collision occurred? What would that impact be like? Well, I'll, I, I teach navigation in very high-class simulators, uh, world-class simulators at Georgian, and every time I do a tour, people ask me what happens when there's big waves and what happens when you collide. And my answer is always, we teach you not to do that at Georgian College. Mm. <laughs> um, so. Uh, luckily, I don't know what the answer is to that question, but it would be, you know, if, if the last minute or so you realize that two ships are going to collide, then, you know, the two captains take over and they start, you know, giving orders. They turn the general alarms on and they, you know, try and reduce the 
impacts by either steering to one side or the other or by reducing the speed of the vessels as quick as possible, you know, and some other factors, you know, making sure there's nobody up on the bow, um, you know, things like that, anything you can do. And you only have 30 seconds, really, by the time you figure it out, get a chance to react and, and, and to get anybody to move. And although it seems like it's in slow motion, that was the fastest, you know, mm. 60 seconds of anybody on board's life at that point. I can imagine. Uh, Captain Colin McNeil has been with us, teaches and coordinates Georgian College's Marine Navigation and Marine Engineering programs. Uh, Colin, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Have a fantastic day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, finds himself in another scandal, this time surrounding the We Charity uh, and his family's involvement in it and a sole source contract uh, that guaranteed them the money. To talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher is with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, yes. Thank you. So many have spoken quite highly of this charity from all different political stripes. What has the Prime Minister done wrong here? Well, what he's done wrong is uh, he violated one of the key laws that protects our democracy and protects the public's money from being handed out to friends of the politicians, the politicians' family members, or or, uh, friends of the ruling party. And likely, I think, uh, hopefully the Auditor General will look at it and find as well likely that the key spending rules that protect the public money uh, are, were also violated in this situation. So, you know, these are key rules. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has stated that without these rules, we don't have a democracy. And Trudeau has violated them the third time that he's violated the ethics rules in this way. Uh, your thought on that, that he keeps seem to be repeating these silly mistakes? It's really strange, I must say. I, I do, do not understand. These are obvious conflicts of interest with the Aga Khan going to his private island in the Bahamas while the Aga Khan is lobbying him for tens of millions of dollars. In this case, the extensive ties between Trudeau's family and the WE charity, I I don't know why his radar is off, especially since his radar was so on about these things back in 2015. The, The Liberals' platform promised to clean up politics more than any other party had in, in the past, right back to when the country was created. 75 promises for open, honest, accountable government. And uh, then he sent mandate letters to the ministers, made them public for the first time. And each mandate letter started saying you have to maintain the highest ethical standards that will bear the closest public scrutiny. And then Trudeau himself has just not walked his own ethics talk since. And he's let cabinet ministers off the hook. Bill Morneau violated the federal ethics law. Dominic LeBlanc violated the federal ethics law. They're both still in cabinet. Some would say even Dominic LeBlanc was promoted after his violation, and Trudeau is going to be found guilty for the third time. I don't know. You have to ask him, why is your radar so off on these very obvious conflicts? Why do you treat this key democracy law that protects the public's uh, money as a joke. It's really strange. I don't understand it. 
at least now he apologizes. Does that change anything? There was a time when he wouldn't do that. Uh, although, I, you know, I was watching the press conference today when he was asked the question if he knew that his family had been paid by this charity. Again, he wouldn't come out and answer the question. He said, well, they know they're making money uh, doing public speaking. I have no idea of the details. And again, just kind of avoiding uh, the question. Does the apology wash this time? <clears throat> Uh, no, because there are still lots of documents that are hidden, and we don't know whether the Prime Minister is going to continue hiding them, as he did in the SNC-Lavalin scandal situation, where we still don't know the full truth, because the government would not allow certain people, that Trudeau as the Prime Minister would not allow certain people to talk to, about the issue um, to the Ethics Commissioner and also hid documents claiming they were cabinet secrets. And uh, so if he does the same thing here, we may not know the truth, especially of the big key question, and this is the question that Democracy Watch filed a complaint with the Ethics Commissioner and RCMP about today, because uh, neither of them are looking at it. Uh, M- some MPs have filed complaints, but not about this issue. This is based on new information, some of which just came out yesterday. And that big key question is, did the Prime Minister or someone acting on his behalf intervene in the public service and with public servants who were deciding what to do about this program and try to influence their decision into recommending a sole source contract for a WE charity, one of the Prime Minister's wife's favorite charities? Uh, if they did that, that's far more serious than what we know Trudeau already did, which was he sat at the table when Cabinet approved that recommendation from the public service. But he and Bill Morneau and the other Cabinet ministers have been hiding behind the fact that the public servants, they claim on their own, public servants recommended a sole source contract for we charity for $19.5 million. It's hard to believe because that is a lot of money and to have no competitive bidding process when we know from lots of experts coming out and saying there's many other organizations who could have done this contract just as well, if not better than we. But that's a big question, and if Trudeau is going to hide the truth behind uh, that question and what the answer really is, uh, then that is very serious, and the apology won't wash. And if it is found out that someone from the Prime Minister's office and we know that his chief of staff did, took part in discussions with regard to the contract. If there's any hint of trying to influence the outcome of those discussions from himself or his chief of staff or anyone else uh, acting on his behalf, that's a very serious violation and, and I think would cross the line and amount to a breach of trust, a, a violation of the criminal code. Uh, this is the third time uh, where where he's the prime minister has found himself in a situation, an ethical situation like this. Uh, as you mentioned, d- does it matter the fact that it was very similar in a sense to the Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, situation where the Prime Minister's office was trying to influence decisions? Well, we don't know for sure whether they tried to influence the public service right. decision. But if they did, it, it's just as serious. It's in a different area. In the SNC-Lavalin scandal, it was trying to influence law enforcement. And in this scandal, it's trying to influence government spending and rig, essentially rig the contracting process so that we gets the con- we charity gets the contract. Both very very serious violations. And as I say, um, in the SNC Lavalin, we still don't know. The RCMP are still 
as far as we know, looking at whether to uh, investigate Prime Minister for obstruction of justice, because uh, in that situation he was trying to influence law enforcement and stop a prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. And in in this case, uh, the Knox Watch has called on the RCMP to investigate breach of trust uh, possibilities here. We have all the elements there. There's evidence in all five areas of, of the test for whether there has been a breach of trust because the Prime Minister, as the government official, took part in a decision-making process that, in a way that violates the ethics standards in, 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 to a significant degree. And he was dishonest about it initially, claiming We Charity was the only organization that could do this when we it's been confirmed. I mean, it was just a false claim he made. And he was doing it all for the unethical purpose of helping out one of his wife's favorite charities. So those are all the elements of a breach of trust. And it would be even worse if it's shown that the prime minister or someone acting on his behalf actually tried to rig the the contracting process to uh, award We Charity with this sole source contract for $19.5 million. So where's this going, Duff? Uh, are Canadians reacting to this? Is this something that, that we'll just, you know, here today, gone tomorrow? No, it won't be. Uh, what it showed with the uh, Aga Khan scandal and the Prime Minister and the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the, the Liberals dropped about seven percentage points in the polls after both of those scandals. And the reason why is, as far as we can tell from polling and and uh, post-election polls and and election polling is that swing voters really care about these issues, and swing voters uh, look for uh, parties with platforms that will clean up politics because they know if you're not going to run a clean government, you're likely that you're not going to clean up any problem in society because you'll be too busy taking care of yourself mm-hmm. and your family and your friends and friends of your party, and so uh, I think they will hit take a hit this time. And uh, it'll likely be around the same amount because it's just as serious a situation. And it will drag on as well, especially if they try to hide documents from the Ethics Commissioner, from the RCMP, from the more than one uh, committee in the House of Commons that is looking at this. And so it's going to drag on past the summer. And I think there will be a political cost because swing voters do care about these issues very much. Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Stay safe. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. An op-ed in the Toronto Star, Hamilton Spectator, from this weekend uh, came from the perspective of a teenager in Oakville discussing uh, systemic racism and how attending a Black Lives Matter rally helped him change his mind, open his mind uh, on the issues. It's a great column. It's entitled, As a, as a White Kid from Oakville, I Was Taught Syst- uh, Systemic Racism Didn't Exist Here. A Black Lives Matter rally led me to ugly truths. Let's bring in Ethan Carley. He is with us now. Ethan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, congratulations. This is a great piece and something that, uh, as an older adult, I'm asking myself the same questions uh, in the wake of uh, the George Floyd death. Uh, what was it? What was the turning point for you that made you take another look at this? Well, when I attended the Black Lives Matter rally in Oakville, one speaker told the story of Ira Julius Johnson and Isabel Jones and how 
75 members of the KKK came to Oakville in 1930. And that was the starting point of when I said, why haven't I heard of this before? Living in Oakville for 15 years, going to school in Oakville for 15 years, why is this new to me? Because it seems like a pretty big event. Mm. And it's disturbing history. So I know it's not easy for the town to remember, but it seems like it should be acknowledged. So uh, over and above this event in the 1930s, you have just felt that you have been kept away from this information, and that is the systemic racism. Is that what I'm saying? And I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, that's not systemic. It could be seen as systemic racism, but that's what I'm trying to say here is that 75 members of the KKK in Oakville is systemic racism. Yeah. A high school flying the Confederate flag in Georgetown is systemic racism. The founders of my town, their family owning slaves, that's systemic racism. Joseph Brand, who is memorialized all over Burlington, owning slaves and his wife beating them, that's systemic racism. What do your friends say about your revelation? My... I've heard from a lot of people who live in Oakville, white people, that they share the same experience. Someone said that Oakville is known as the bubble town because we're pretty unexposed to the realities of racism. And my black friends or my friends who are people of color have I've listened to their experiences, mm-hmm. and I know that racism exists here, but I never would have thought a violent history of racism would exist here. I never thought that the founders of my town may own slaves. So I wasn't surprised by the existence of racism, but more the prevalence of it. Um, to me, and, and, you know, since the whole George Floyd tragic death uh, incident, many have asked the question about systemic racism, to which my response is, if we have to keep asking if there's systemic racism, there obviously is systemic racism. Um, there was all over the place during that time, during that era, whether we're in Canada or the United States, you know, different, different, uh, situations in in different areas and such. But I I think what I was uh, so surprised is, is the amount of, or surprised at is the amount of white people who just don't understand what the black experience is about. And as you mentioned, it, it for me, it was an opening conversation that I had with someone who, 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 and, and, you know, I, I, for me, it was, why am I just figuring this out in my fifties? But I guess it's because I didn't ask the question. So what needs to be done here, Ethan? So people don't have to go through the experience and do the digging you did in order to find out this information. How is this changing things? Exactly. Well, I think already it's stimulating a discussion amongst our educators of how we can integrate more local history into the classroom and even just black Canadian history 
in general. And I hope that our political leaders will listen and stop denying that systemic racism isn't pervasive here, that it isn't as bad as the U.S., because I think that ultimately is an excuse for white people to say, oh, racism isn't that bad here, and just dismiss it. Uh, Are you concerned that this movement, and, and, you know, every movement has this, every, you know, we saw it with the Me Too movement, where, you know, we've seen it with the Black Lives Matter, and, and climate change, doesn't matter what it is, that the discussion gets taken over by extremists on either side, whether it's the left or the right, and we'll try to... Uh, take the conversation in in the direction of their agenda. How do we keep this discussion moving forward and not get caught in those extremes, as you mentioned, with people trying to justify it? Well, I'm not sure I have the answer to that question, but what I've done is just focus on what what I want this article to do, which is bring about awareness towards the history. So hopefully we can recognize the racism that has existed where we live and the fear and oppression that our black communities have faced. I'm not, I'm not so interested in debating the extremist agendas. I think that we need to keep focus on what our mission is here in dismantling white supremacy. Uh, what have you learned from this experience? What do you want to tell your friends? What's the message? I want to tell my friends that racism, the KKK existed here. Racism exists here. So when my white friends make a racist joke and say, oh, I'm just joking. It's just funny. Chill. Like, is it really funny? Because... I think they use they use the idea that racism isn't that bad here as an excuse to make racist jokes or just throw around racist concepts and make it okay. Were you always this concerned about what is happening in society? Uh, how much of an impact did this have on you? Or, or, or you've always been actively minded this way? I've always been fairly actively minded, but this whole recent movement and listening to my black peers or my peers of color has made me realize the experiences they face every day. And before, I don't think we did enough of that. We didn't have enough of that conversation or discussion. So now I think we're just learning now how we can be better allies and recognize the racism that exists in our own communities and how we can fix it. What do you want to do when you grow up? I honestly have no idea. (laughs) Nor should you at this age. Uh, Well, congratulations, Ethan. Uh, Great job. Great article. Great message. Good luck to you, whatever you decide to do. Thank you. Uh, Ethan Carley has been with us. The title of the article, As a white kid from Oakville, I was taught systemic racism didn't exist here. A Black Lives Matter rally led me to ugly truths. Uh, Ethan Carley is the author. You can find it in the Hamilton Spectator or the Toronto Star. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.